Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is going to be all about Plato. Uh, Plato. I'm from the Midwest, so I say Play-Doh, but it's Plato. I just don't want to sound like an idiot. Either way, it sounds dumb. Uh, we're going to talk about Plato, and we're going to talk about uh, who he was, his background, how to interpret his writings, um, but then also um, his arguments against like materialism, against relativism, subjectivism, and uh, a little bit of Plato's Plato's theology. I'm really excited. I have with me Dr. David Talcott, and it's going to be great. He's he's just finished a book on this for the PNR Great Thinkers series, and I've had a number of those guys on to talk about their books, so I'm super stoked to do it again. Before we ju- uh, dive in, though. I have to commodify myself. So if you guys like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. And like, I'm talking to you guys. I know this always feels like a call to everyone else, but like, if you like this, if it's your top five favorite podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, you can become a YouTube member and get all sorts of like special emojis and stuff to use of like my face and my dog and little cartoons that we have. All that good stuff. There's a bunch of different perks. You get to see early, uh, you get to see episodes early. You get uh, a glimpse into my podcast notes that I take. Uh, so all that good stuff. Buy some merch, all the stuff. Please support the podcast and help me feed my dog. All right. Without further ado, though, uh, enough selling myself. Let's jump into Plato and all things Platonism. <clears throat> Dr. Talcott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. Um, before we dive into like some Plato stuff, uh, I always like to ask philosophers... Um, and theologians, like how they got into their work. So, like, well, first of all, I guess, how do you how do you think of yourself? Are you a, a historian of philosophy? Are you a classical philosopher? Are you a philosopher simplicator? Like, how, how do you think of yourself there? Yeah, I'm a philosopher who works on history of philosophy. So, I'm I'm definitely not a classicist. I'm an aspiring classicist, but um, yeah, I work on history of philosophy. But uh, I, you know, I teach I teach a range of courses in philosophy. You know, like a lot of us do at small schools. Yeah. So. Um, Awesome. And and you're at the uh, the King's College there in New York, which yes. uh, my wife's uncle is all about the King's College. He went there and just obsessed. So shout out, Uncle Lon. Great. Great. Yeah. Love to um, hear it. That's right. Where where did you do your dissertational work at? Yeah. So I did my undergrad at Hillsdale College and then my PhD at Indiana University, Bloomington. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what did you do your dissertation on? Uh, it was on Plato. Yeah. So oh, I worked dear. on Plato's early dialogues, especially his Euthyphro and you know, made some kind of, uh, you know, thorny arguments about that and the place of the Euthyphro and Plato's overall corpus. And uh, as you know, there's endless discussions about uh, different issues in Plato interpretation. So, right. uh, but it was a great excuse to just read Plato for a couple of years and, and really uh, think about those kinds of things. So awesome. I love that. So um, you got this book coming out. Um, I think it's probably just called like Plato in the, in the great yep. thinkers. Um, so is this like directly from your dissertational work or is this, uh, something brand new? Um, it was new. It's kind of come out of my teaching. I mean, it's really a, uh, almost popular level introduction to Plato. I've really written it to be accessible, yeah. you know, the kind of thing you could give to people in your church, uh, you could, you could use with honestly, probably high school seniors you could use yeah. it with. Uh, so I really made it not just for experts, for philosophers, but really, I, I think in the spirit of the series, something, 
broadly accessible. So I'd say it more comes out of my teaching, just thinking about what's valuable mm. about Plato today. Why would a Christian want to read Plato uh, if they weren't already interested in it? Yeah. And so to try to 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 point out uh, something that I think is pretty clear that a lot of the philosophical issues uh, we care about today and that have been a perennial interest to philosophers originated over 2000 years ago. Yeah. There, there are already arguments about relativism, materialism, skepticism, God, what human life is all about. Uh, you know, these kinds of things, uh, uh, serious arguments happening about them 2,400 years ago. And yeah. many of the views which are uh, false and destructive were already, you know, pretty thoroughly defeated, I think, by Plato yeah. and Aristotle. And and yet they keep coming back. So we have to keep discussing them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's so fantastic. Um, some of my professors will, will point that out. And especially in Christian communities, we like to point that out that like, hey, uh, Alfred North Whitehead uh, was probably wrong about most of what he said, but he said everything's a footnote to Plato, and he's probably right about that. You could find the hard problem of consciousness back there. You can find the argument from reason. All this kind of like anti-materialism type stuff, it's already in Plato. And, and yeah, like you said, like it keeps coming up every generation, so you have to you know retool it or recontextualize it. Mm -hmm. But it's not, you know, it's it's not brand new. It's not made up. It, you can find the stuff all the way back yeah. there. There's so, always, I mean, each age has its own complexities to it. And obviously modern scientific inquiry adds a lot of complexity to it. Mm. Um, so it's not that there's nothing more to do. There's there's like tons to do. Yeah. Um, but there are, a, you know, a certain set of basic alternatives on certain issues. And um, a, a number of those were initially explored you know, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the way you wrote the book because it, like you said, it is um, kind of a popular introduction, but you're still going in on deep stuff that, that was new to me. And I've, I've read a lot of books on Plato. I've read his dialogues and it was really cool um, the way that you can. So it, it does show that it came out of your teaching because you're still teaching. It's not just like bare bones, boring, like, okay, I've heard all this. It's like, no, this is fascinating new stuff. So I do uh, commend the book and I appreciate it. One thing that you talked about uh, in the beginning, you talk about, uh, people who beef with Plato, like contra Plato type stuff. So you got Nietzsche mm -hmm. on one side, and then you also mentioned Van Til and Frame, and that's kind of the school that I came out of. That's where I learned philosophy from Van Til, and then from Frame's giant book, and then, you know, kind of moving away from that. But um, he's getting hit from from all different sides. Can you? What was Nietzsche's problem? Nietzsche's problem with Plato? Yeah. Well, let me just say this too. One of the things I do in the introduction is just talk about how. Um, there are different views of the value of Plato. Like mm -hmm. you said, some there are actually a number of supporters of Plato in history. Uh, and I guess I'm, I'm, I fall into that camp yeah. by and large. Um, but there are both secular and Christian critics of Plato, you know, very, very heavy critics. Um, and uh, so and I so one of the things I do is like, here's some Christians that like Plato. Here's some Christians that don't like Plato. If you're a Christian reading this book. I guess you have to think because you're going to have to decide between those two. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I make my arguments. Um, but Nietzsche and others, you know, a lot of others in the last 200 years in the West don't like Plato. I mm -hmm. mean, Plato represents all of the old terrible stuff that Nietzsche is against. Right. Um, things like truth, things like being, things like uh, virtue in a, in a philosophical sense, um, things like eternal souls. Uh, things like transcending the imminent. Uh, Nietzsche's against all this, right? This is all terrible. <laughs> so he, it. it's really funny. I mean, to me, it's funny the way Nietzsche runs things together. He's like, Socrates, Jesus, Hegel, Kant, all this stuff's horrible. 
Um, and, and so, you know, and he, he was a student of, uh, of Plato and the pre-Socratics. He has lectures that survive, you know, about even pre-Socratic philosophy. Mm. And um, so, so, so anyway, he, he, Nietzsche's not a big fan. Uh, he likes the pre-Socratics, um, but he doesn't like them so much uh, for their content, their substantive arguments. So he's not like, yeah, Anaximander really had it going on with his theories. Right. Um, it, he he admires the spirit of the pre-Socratics. He sees the pre-Socratics as sort of the philosophical version of uh, a Greek hero and has that kind of heroic quality to to their intellectual work yeah. uh, that is really a model for us. And then you get Socrates and Plato and they're very... Um, they're very pedestrian. They're domesticated. They sort of domesticate mm. philosophy. Um, you know, so he wants to get back to, you know, some kind of uh, ride of the Valkyries for, for philosophy. <laughs> and for him, that's the pre-Socratic. So he loves Heraclitus and um, and things like that. So, yeah, Nietzsche's a fascinating figure uh, on this stuff. Not so much for I think sort of analytic arguments uh, about right. value of philosophy or Plato, but the the spirit in which you can approach um some some of these different things mm. and um you know you don't really turn to nietzsche for arguments you turn to him for ways of looking at things i think right uh, so es yeah. especially if you're a, a angsty 15 year old sure yeah that works or, against or, your parents. or even older yeah yeah but no that's it true. works that's for true. that too yeah that's so good um so for those like people are going to know who plato is but uh can you fill us in like who who was he I, I found that really fascinating as well like how much you were able to pack in in the beginning like who who is this guy yeah sure i mean obviously we don't know a lot about his biography obviously a lot of it is speculative comes from later sources um like dajnes laertius who's uh, a bit of a sketchy source uh but you know uh, it's clear enough the outline some of the outlines are clear enough that he was born you know an athenian so in athens um he was born aristocratic um, he lived a decently long life. You know, there's an account that he lived to 81 years old. Um, so he, he was probably either late teen, early 20s when Socrates was executed in 399. That was a pivotal moment for him when his uh, this person he admired was executed. Um, and, uh, you know, so he lived through quite a bit during his lifetime. You know, he was in his teenage years or early 20s when, when Athens loses the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. And uh, so, you know, sort of like being an aristocrat in a defeated country, you know, it's yeah. a weird, it's a weird thing. You know, you have a lot of opportunity in one sense in the rebuild phase, um, but you're, you're kind of beaten down. Um, and in any case, he has a lot of, you know, it's a very famous letter that he wrote, um, his ninth uh, letter, uh, where he uh, describes the opportunities he had in the kind of aftermath of the of the fall of Athens, uh, a lot of political turmoil. And at one point, this um, a, a political party gains control and kind of does a little mini coup. Hmm. And some of his relatives are part of the leaders of the coup. Wow. So he's like a young adult, you know, like, you know, fresh out of Harvard or whatever, and offered a job in this new in this new administration, this, this new regime. And uh, so he, he he sees a lot when he's young and has a lot of opportunity. And mostly what he sees is everything goes south. Yeah. Um, he sees his beloved teacher executed. Um, he sees his friends get power, his relatives get power, and then rule just as corruptly as mm -hmm. the people before them did. And he says, this is, this is a problem. Um, you know, political power without virtue is a problem. Mm. And political power without wisdom 
and goodness is a problem. And so uh, he turns from politics to philosophy. And, you know, he, he pursues, you know, a course of philosophical writing and instruction. He founds a school in Athens at the academy, at the gymnasium there uh, that we still, you know, remember today with the term academy. Yeah. And so it goes on to influence, you know, so many people, does this huge writing program of all these dialogues that survive to today uh, and that were compiled and studied by his, his future students. So definitely a remarkable, remarkable figure. Uh, even today, his the way that his writings hang together is yeah. um, pretty amazing. And the, the amount of engagement and intellectual uh, oomph behind them is just, uh, you know, impressive. Seriously impressive. Yeah. Um, I, I can never remember. I can never remember everyone's names. Like all the pre-Socratics are always like Anaximenes and Anaximander. And then like you get like uh, Aristotle. But I think is, is Plato's real name Aristocles. Is that right? See, now you're asking me a history question. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I have to look at my notes. I'm, on, I'm not <laughs> lecturing so right now. That's I so think uh, it could. Uh, I'm not, I honestly don't remember that off the top yeah. of my head. That's right. It, there's so many of those floating around in my head. And I'm always like, oh, if I can pull one of those out. I yeah, really smart. I, don't, I don't think so. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is where, you know, as philosophers, we can just punt on these questions. Exactly. When it just gets stipulate. too tough, we're just like, I don't remember them. You asked my classes as friend. That's so good. I love yeah. that. Yeah, always, um, always have an out. You have to. That's right. That's yeah. great, man. I love that back door. So uh, I, I've heard this too. This is another one that I've heard. Um, Plato, Plato means like broad shouldered or something like that, and that he was like a wrestler. Yeah. Have you heard that one before? Yeah, I mean, it means it, it, in general, it means broad. Broad. So yeah, broad there's shoulders. questions as to why. Is it broad shoulders? Was he a wrestler? Oh, is he fat. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, fat doesn't seem to fit too well. Maybe does he have a big nose? You know, it, it, there's speculation as to why he was. Oh yeah, I've heard the broad, but yeah, I, I, I'm partial to the idea that he was a uh, you know physically fit guy, and yeah, man. Um, there's a whole story on that actually. If you think about the location of the academy, which kind of reflects uh, you know young male education at the time, mm -hmm. you know they put the school in the gym yeah. in the same spot. That's awesome. So, which which fits with if you read the Republic and other things, you know that he talks about. What fits his developmental model? Mm -hmm. You develop the body and the soul, yeah. and you develop a lot of spiritual characteristics through bodily activities. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're when you're wrestling, when you're competing, and this and that, you're 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 preparing for courage because you're gonna you're, you're gonna need that later on when you fight for the city. But also, you're gonna need that just when you have to you know make decisions for the right reasons in the face of opposition. You know, yeah. as you're you know, mayor of your little precinct and, and things like that. So anyway, those two actually really go, go together. And there's a, a story there. And uh, quite a few of his dialogues are actually set in a uh, gymnasium setting. Not mm. all of them, but there's a number of them that show real familiarity with so what goes on there with like the saunas, uh, with the, the kinds of, uh, like I said, the wrestling, but also the different kind of track and field type um, activities. Uh, and, and, you know the kind of male camaraderie that's there, as well as the 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 genuine discussions about life mm -hmm. and about success and like what you want for the future, the kind of people you are now, um, all the little social bizarre things and back and forths that go on. Yeah, um, he shows a real familiar familiarity with that uh, in his writings. So I love that. I, I grew up, you know, wrestling since first grade. And now I do jujitsu, and we have these convers conversations, and I'm like, yes. Like this is what Plato was doing, and then I think about what was over the academy door, like 
some about like if you those ignorant of geometry don't enter here i'm like well let me just forget about that part i hate geometry i don't want let me just focus on the physical and the philosophy more well we can come back to geometry eventually if you want that that's um you know that's in the grad school studies you know maybe you're just still at the uh you know the, the physical training <laughs> that's right. stage and, and not not ready for that yet but no geometry is um yeah pretty pretty important in his model mathematics yeah. is yeah i'm working on it myself but um yeah it's an uphill battle well uh, we, we're all we're all works in progress that's right amen thank you um so you you brought up this uh socratic problem and that's the problem of deciphering well, let me put it out there and see if I got it right. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the problem of deciphering, like, is this uh, Plato or is this Socrates? Is Socrates just his mouthpiece or are these actual works uh, or these actual, you know, ideas from uh, that Plato got from his, his teacher, Socrates? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's pretty much right. The, the, the problem is most of what Plato wrote is in dialogue form mm -hmm. and Plato himself is not one of the characters. Yeah. And uh, when someone writes in dialogues, you can't automatically assume that like the protagonist represents the author's own point of view. You can write a protagonist that has a, 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 a protagonist has a different point of view than the author. Yeah. And so we're confronted with this issue of um, Plato's not a character. Socrates is a character in, in most of the dialogues, not all, but, but many of them. Um, does the character of Socrates represent Plato's views? Or is the character of Socrates just the character of Socrates meant to teach us something? And that right. Plato himself is in the background of the whole of the whole thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is this is in general a problem with Plato interpretation. And the Socratic problem is kind of like the problem of the historical Jesus, the problem of the historical Socrates. What did the mm. actual per there was an actual person, Socrates? Uh, what did he believe? Uh, what what did he do? And we have to piece that together from other things because Plato wrote about him, Xenophon wrote about him, other people yeah. wrote about him, but Socrates didn't write any of his own. So there's sort of these problems, it's these problems interconnected, right? These problems of the historical Socrates and these problems of Plato, the author and, and the thinker. And yeah. usually people who work on these areas have a view about, you know, the whole, the whole picture and how to fit it, how to fit it all together. Yeah. And, and um, I've heard this one before and I appreciate it in your book that there's, you know, early, middle and late writings of, of Plato. And then there's uh, you, you brought up at least two ways of reconciling them. There's mm -hmm. developmentalism and then there's Unitarianism, which for the, the Christians are their hackles are going up. But it's not yeah. that kind of thing. Um, can you can you help us out with these two? Yeah. So it's standard practice now to divide Plato's dialogues into those three groups, usually called early, middle and late. And um, there's a number of ways in which that division is done. Um, some of it goes back to stylometry, which is kind of study of grammatical and linguistic features of the dialogues. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, how many unusual words appear in a dialogue, like words that are very, very rare in Greek? Um, you know, is you can imagine as someone sort of develops their writing style, they might change how they do that. And later, his later dialogues have more of those rare words than earlier ones. And there's various mm -hmm. reasons for that. Um, so you can do it on stylometry, which has to do not just with that, but with other kinds of details like that to divide it into three periods. And then you can tell the order of the three periods in, in a number of ways. Uh, for one, we know that we're pretty confident he was working on the laws when he died. Um, it looks unfinished and, um, there's a testimony that that's what he was working on when he died. So works that are like the laws go in the late period. 
And then uh, for the other two periods early in the middle, you can tell a difference in the complexity and the scope of things like from the Republic and the Fido as middle period dialogues versus things like the Apology and the Euthyphro, which are mm -hmm. early period dialogues. Um, so it's not uncon it's not like there's no controversy over the division, right. but it, it is a widely accepted way to, to break them up. And then the question becomes, uh, you know, how to understand the relationship between the three, um, mm -hmm. you know, in Plato's own development. Does he change and go through like three phases? That's a standard view. The developmental view says that where in the early period, he's a young writer still kind of exploring his own ideas. And he writes in order to uh, memorialize and honor his teacher, Socrates. And so he writes Socratic dialogues in the spirit of Socrates, the way that Socrates talked about things. Yeah. Um, not necessarily eyewitnesses recordings or like transcripts or anything, but just arguments in the style of Socrates. And then the theory goes, as he works through those, he starts to have his own ideas, not just memorializing Socrates, but saying, hey, here's how we're going to answer these questions that Socrates had, these questions about knowledge, questions about virtue. And so you get the middle period dialogues like the Republic, the Phaedo, the Phaedrus, Symposium, that have a lot of the kind of classic Plato, yeah. um, classic Plato ideas in them. And that's when he reaches his maturity and he, he gives you the full theory of the forms and the two worlds and, and these things he's known for. And then in the late period, there's the view that he's kind of reconsidering his mature views, maybe identifying problems that are unresolved with them, um, as well as, I think, developing more interest in natural philosophy and physics and, and, and things like that. Um, so that's kind of the developmental side of things. Yeah. The, the other side, which I, I lean towards in general a little bit more, is okay. a, a more um, unitarian or uniformitarian mm -hmm. view which says, yes, there are some, you know, some differences that you can find at different points and not necessarily denying all development, but arguing that in general, the development is over overblown and mm -hmm. that um, a lot of the differences between the different dialogues uh, can be understood as part of a literary program that Plato was undertaking mm -hmm. uh, to intentionally expose people to his ideas in a more realistic and uh, uh, pedagogically productive way. So maybe you don't find talk about the forms in some of the early dialogues. That's because he's getting you ready for them uh, in, in the middle period dialogues. Hmm. And so the disputes on this are endless. You could do your whole career on this. Um, there, are, <laughs> there, are books, there are books on this. And, you know, some of it is, you know, probably angels dancing on the head of a pin. We probably don't sure. need to like spend. I, I don't think we should spend our whole life on this, although I've spent probably too much time on it already. <laughs> um, but it, it does kind of bear on how to think about how the dialogues fit together. So it is an interesting, um, an interesting project, but you're sort of faced with it when you read the dialogues. Cause you're like, wow. I mean, some of these dialogues end in confusion and, you know, aporia, you don't, under, yeah. you, you end with no answer. That's annoying. What's up with that? Why, why did Plato write it that way? So you, you really, he's really like forcing you to engage with him as an author. And, mm -hmm. and so these questions are, are really, you know, you know, prompted for us. Totally. Yeah. I, I think it's fascinating um, that he focused so much on dialogues and that I think this was in your book as well, that like he that was intentional. He's like, no, this is the way to do it. This is the way to philosophize is through these dialogues. And, you know, I don't know about rumors or whatever, but I've heard it said that like Socrates didn't want any of his stuff written down. Plato's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Anyways, let me write this down. But so then he does dialogues and then his student Aristotle is like, He's not an analytic philosopher because that's like 
super not there yet, but he's more like rigorous and like, I'm going to tell you what's up and here's it, you know, word for word. We're going to, we're going to lay out arguments and stuff. Um, what do you make of those like three completely different styles all from like within, you know, a generation or two? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a really interesting contrast. Socrates didn't write anything. Obviously he could have, but he didn't. Um, I, I don't think we really know why. I think that's a little bit of a, a, mm -hmm. a stretch. Uh, we can speculate and, you know, everyone's entitled to their speculations. Sure. You know, the thing about Plato is I would say he, he could have written what Aristotle wrote in the sense that he could have written treatises. Yeah. I mean, you can tell by the way the dialogues are put together, the way that there are such rigorous arguments inside of them. He basically had to kind of do what Aristotle does and then turn it into a dialogue. Right. Um, and, and, and so it adds kind of an extra pedagogical feature. How do I draw people into this and sort of portray realistically how you would get into a, a, you know, an argument with this? And how would I take somebody who maybe isn't on board initially and move them to the conclusion? What are yeah. some uh, you know, premises we, I, they would likely agree with? And then I can move them towards my conclusion. But, you know, stylistically, it, it, it is a great question. Um, you know, there were other dialogues around this same time that were written, including even dialogues with Socrates as a character. Hmm. Um, Charles Kahn has a great book, uh, Plato and the Socratic Dialogue, that really, um, you know, goes through some of these other Socratic dialogues that are out there. So it was, you know, it was a known genre. Okay. Um, you know, dialogues with Socrates. Uh, it, it was a thing. Um and, you know, prose writing, obviously, like Aristotle did, was certainly a thing with the historians and the sophists were writing and um, the medical doctors. So there's there's precedent for that as well. Okay. But it certainly seems like a kind of almost temperamental difference, you know, or just yeah. kind of, uh, overall uh, approach to philosophy difference. Totally. Yeah, I've, I've seen um, I've I've seen it compared to like the continental analytic divide today. That like Aristotle would be like the analytic and and Plato, uh, you know, his style, at least, of using more metaphors and dialogues and this kind of thing. That's what the, maybe the Continentals do more. I don't know. I'm more of an analyst yeah. myself. So I'm like, don't don't do that with my boy Plato. But um, yeah, it's uh, he, he does like to use the imagery. Um, I, I just just you just just think of Plato as perfectly balanced. Right. The perfect, perfect mixture of the analytic rigor, as well as recognizing yeah. we're not just brains on sticks. There's the sure. whole other other side of the soul which also needs to be convinced you know mm. and it's because he's interested in virtue and he's interested in the well-being of the whole community and it's not enough just to have solid arguments in order for that to work yeah. you have to move the whole person not yeah. just the mind the mind is a crucial part of it it's an essential part of it but you've got you got to move the whole the whole soul so you've got to make it uh beautiful uh and you've got to make it attractive uh, in order for it to really be compelling. So he's, yeah. he's trying to do that as well. I think that's a, a really good model that a lot of philosophers can learn today. Not learn, I'm sure they already know it, right? But um, like the, the sci-fi authors are the ones who get all the philosophy into culture. Like everyone knows cogito ergo sum because of like Philip K. Dick and because of, you know, Blade Runner and stuff. And it's in there deep. And yeah, maybe they learned it in high school, but there's no way they're remembering it if it's not in those movies. And like, you know, Dostoevsky's dialogues that he's inter interjecting or, or like C.S. Lewis's like novels just taking off. And he's like, no, there's philosophy in there. There's theology and philosophy. I'm just, I, they're latent in there. I'm going in the back door. And I, I want to encourage like my analytic friends like, hey, you got some good stuff to say. Can you write it in like a short story? Can you do that for it? Like that would be fantastic, you know? 
Yeah, it's it's tough, right? I mean, that skill set that's that's a big skill set. I kind of right. feels like we should have teams, right? Like we should mm. have um, teams of artists and philosophers working together. That seems that's like the right point. way to do it. Um, you know, but along with some exceptional people that that can yeah. pull it off. You know, I mean, I think we we need to we need to have that. Wow, I didn't think and, about that. Yeah, having a team would be amazing. Yeah, you're like the sci-fi like short story guy. Yeah. Here's some good philosophy for you. Let's work together. Oh man, that sounds yeah, so in, cool. In some ways, that's kind of what the academy was. I mean, not not in the full artistic spirit of it, but um, the academy was a team, right? It was like a school, you know, like a faculty mm. and, and student body. And so they're kind of working together on this joint project. And mm. I will say, we we are sort of going beyond Plato at this point. We we're talking about uh, not just obviously movies. There were no movies, but like. Uh, putting on plays or things like that. Like, yeah. yes, he wrote dialogues. He didn't really write dramas though, you know? So right. the dialogue has its own drama to it. Um, of course, I, and I'd love to talk about that in the different yeah. dialogues, but it, even his sort of artistic scope was very, you know, rational and outlook. It still keeps that, keeps that element. So, but, but I think, yeah. you know, kind of pushing it beyond, um, he, he kind of invites that, you know, he says the politicians should be speaking in a way that builds virtue in their, in, mm. in the people and the artists should be doing their art in such a way that builds virtue in their people. And, um, so I think it's in the spirit of Plato to do yeah. this. That's good. Yeah. And, and, and maybe going past, going beyond Plato's dialogue of every now and then his interlocutor, you're, you're absolutely right. You're hundred percent correct. And like, well, I yeah. know, this, is, this is how realistic, but whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Some of it's very ham fisted, right? Some, right, some of it's right. sort of like, just, uh, you know, this could have been a treatise <laughs> and look at some points, he, Socrates breaks into very long, you know, monologues, you know, he goes mm -hmm. on for pages at times. So it's, yeah. it, it, Plato's not above, not above doing that. Yeah. Um, but I, but there are some of the dialogues where the action is really relevant to what's, totally. to what's going on. You think about, the Phaedo, which is the dialogue where he dies, Socrates is executed, mm -hmm. um, and to see the, um, the the closeness that's there between Socrates and his friends uh, is part of what makes the whole thing very moving. Um, you know, Socrates' clear love for his friends and his friends' yeah. love for him. Um, you know, in in the symposium, which is at a, this drinking party, this dinner party. The character of Alcibiades shows up about two thirds of the way through and basically just drunkenly crashes the party. <laughs> right. And that illustrates a lot in the kind of thing, you know, that Plato's talking about that Socrates is warning against, yeah. um, you know, love gone wrong instead of love gone right. And so it's, it's a modest amount of drama, the little bit of action that's there, right. Right. but it usually has, you know, quite a bit of meaning to it. So it's, yeah. it's, you know, that's, again, that's a whole fun little area to like try to read up on and think about why, why did he have that little piece of action? Cause it's usually not, you know, not random. Yeah. Yeah. The symposium makes me queasy sometimes because they're talking like the things that they're talking about and like gratifying their love. I'm like, dude, please. But um, I, I, I wanted to ask, do you got a favorite dialogue? Don't say symposium. That's a tough one. Uh, it probably changes depending on what I'm teaching. I, yeah. I think it's it's rotated over the years. It, yeah. what, what I found is um, there's quite a few that I admire more and more the more that I that I read them. So do I have yeah. one? Not not really. Yeah. Um, I usually right now recommend the Gorgias as a kind oh, man. Of introduction, introduction to his, his work. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a nice introduction in a lot of ways. It's kind of, well, so I've, I've heard it meant said that it's like a short version of, um, of what the heck of his big one, the Republic the Republic is yeah. what, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. yeah. 
because it's on like justice right like maybe i don't know you're the expert here well it's a central concern i mean he doesn't quite uh foreground it in the exact same way but i, I actually think it's very much written uh, as preparation for the republic okay as cool. sort of softening you up to the idea of it uh, of, yeah. of what's going to happen in the republic in a way that's a little less metaphysically involved uh in a, in a way that's a little more um politically oriented from the beginning yeah um so yeah much, I, much shorter like you can yeah that's right day. that's right it's you can read it in a day it's still not short like he has some short dialogues you can read in a sitting yeah uh but it so it's still a it's still a substantial work hmm. um but yeah i think that that's uh that's one that i teach regularly now that i really um that, that i really appreciate there's a lot packed in there uh, into that little little dialogue yeah that's awesome. Well, um, so you you break down this little book into it's I say little, but it's packed full of good stuff. Um, into a, these really great chapters for the spiritual against materialism, for truth against relativism, for virtue against hedonism, and like it's 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 really fantastic. I wanted to talk about for the spiritual against materialism here. Um, you mentioned I think probably in the intro as well that Augustine you know appreciated Plato, and that was one of the you know Christians on the side of that. But then he like recants that later in his life um but maybe not wholly right like so some people might po point to that and be like look augustine said that he was totally wrong and that's like not really i think he if correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like he was just like i shouldn't have gone in that far into platonism and neoplatonism like what, what do you what do you make of augustine's you know recantation i guess of that yeah no i i think i read it in the way that you're describing there where um, he does think he was a little uh, overboard enthusiastic at one point in his youth because of the role that Platonists played in helping him um, to reach Christianity, just as part of his intellectual right. uh, and spiritual journey. Um, but uh, I don't see the end as like a complete, you know, rejection of, of Platonism, mm -hmm. but, but more, uh, I mean, the, the way that Augustine did all these retractions at the end of his life is kind of a remarkable thing as, as its own thing very few of us you know get to our old age and decide to publish here's where i was wrong everything i was wrong about in one book right. you know i was i was i was too laudatory of plato um you know I, I see him just as as saying something like that so yeah not not that he's like anti-plato by the end of it i, I don't right. see that yeah that's awesome so uh you got materialists um before plato and then like during yeah. plato i think before would be like like thales and Ex anaximander and exemenes um everything's water every you know yeah. maybe new neutral monism and then like everything's air i hadn't considered this because i'm always focusing on like the atomists of the time but but i i guess yeah thales was like a materialist because he thought everything was water it's pretty fascinating yeah i mean obviously there are disputed questions of interpretation about sure. some of the early pre-Socratics, but I think one of the main rays, ways of reading these guys is they were a, 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 at least pretty far down the materialist line to say something like everything is made out of water yeah. uh, is, is a kind of materialist view. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's obviously not one that won a lot of, you know, uh, subscribers <laughs> over the years, um, but it, it's definitely a proto-materialism. And, you know, and there's a story that gets, that's pretty continuous from them up through um, Democritus and Epicurus, who are really uh, the uh, uh, the materialists in, in, in a full-blown sense with their uh, materialist atoms. Mm. So atomism is kind of the most sophisticated version of materialism that you get. Um, so uh, I go back and forth because there, there's the early guys. I don't know how kind of 
if I want to say they're systematically clear enough to be, you know, full-blown materialists, sure. I think that's reading back a little bit into them, but it, they're, they're moving down that, that, that pathway, you know, and trying to explain the world, right? Why, why are things happening the way they're happening here? Mm-hmm. If you say they're, they're happening the way they're happening because of the properties of material stuff, namely this, it, it, everything's made out of, everything really is water. That's why things happen the way they happen. It's water, yeah. right? Or things happen the way they're happening because everything is air. Or things happen the way they're happening because everything is atoms, right? So it is moving towards a like materialist explanation. It's not about Zeus being mad at you. Um, it's not about failing to do the sacrifices last week, yeah. right? It's about the the rational structure, the material structure. Right? Maybe rational is not the right word, but the material mm. structure. It's a structural thing. Yeah. The, fe- the material features of the stuff around us is what's making things happen the way that they're happening. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, you, uh, again, I think you see that in, in the ancient Greek world in the fullest sense with the atomists. They're the most yeah. consistent and clear and also the most, um, uh, I think, sophisticated materialist you know, account that that comes to be there. And by the time of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you do have Democritus who has put forward a pretty clear, uh, unambiguous uh, materialist picture. Yeah, yeah except like the free will part where you're like the atom swerves and you're like wait well, wait, how does that lead to free will free but will yeah. creates, creates a lot of problems um especially later on um in in the history history story um but yeah uh, it, you you turns out when, when you try to go with the hard materialist line on certain issues uh you have explanatory problems yeah so that's that's the the problem you run into totally um so I, one of the hard things about having a podcast is like you read people's names a lot. Like all of us read people's names and we have a way that we say it in our head and then you have to say it out loud. And you're like, well, I don't know. So it's yeah. Democritus is fine. We all get that one. But then another Atomus is it's like Lucippus or something. Do you... Yeah. Lucippus. Lucippus is fine. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can say the hard K for the C. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so these are like the, the famous Atomists and um, it's funny because like we, we, we called atoms what we have today in our physics atoms mm-hmm. like thinking that that's what they're it's like the same thing and then we're like no you can split that up and it's like well that's not what the atomists thought the atomists are like whatever can't be split if it's a super string whatever down like there, there's something fundamental so we don't it's, it's kind of funny that we said this is the thing this is the atom then you split it and make you know huge bombs and stuff we're like well those idiots right. like no you're an idiot for labeling that preemptively yeah i mean that's right the the ancient atoms are really pre-modern atoms this this is the same idea of atoms that survives from antiquity down to you know the early modern period Mm -hmm. the idea of a tiny uncuttable unsplittable unbreakable piece of matter that's what an atom is supposed to be up until uh at least 1700s Hmm. uh and you know when it breaks down in 1800s i'd have to ask a historian of physics to give me which experiment is the one that does it Uh, but it's pretty it's pretty late um and obviously it turns out that that that's uh not the case in, in in pretty weird ways you know in modern in modern physics so they use the same word uh you know atom and atom uh, but they, they certainly the ancients meant something very different by it. And and to me, something that's more actually kind of more clearly a materialist picture, right? I mean, yeah. if you have a little solid piece of thing, an atom, that's matter. Okay, I, I can I can understand that. If you start talking about other things being material, then it gets a little weird, right? Like, is a, is a string material? I mean, 
Yeah, okay. Um, is, yeah, I know. Uh, but a wave even, function? You, you can like... even... You're right. That that's matter, right? That's yeah. that's material. I mean, Crazy. if you ask Democritus, is a is a wave function matter? He's going to say no. Hmm. And if you ask Democritus, is a force? Let's just go back to forces, right? Let's yeah. just go to Newton, okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> is yeah. is a is a force material? The answer is no, right? Yeah. I mean, things move around. Things things can bump into other things. They yeah. they agreed on that. But all there are is the things moving. Okay, so there's solid stuff the atoms there's empty space and there's and there's the, the solid things moving yeah. but that's just nothing over and above the solid thing right um so obviously this, this turns into problems when you try to just describe it geometrically and do your physics as pure geometry this is one of the things that happens in the 1600s is it becomes clear there's stuff like uh force and momentum and yeah. uh you transfer momentum not just on size but on on mass and things like that um so uh, in in any case the 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 things that count as I mean, to me the things that count as material today are very unclear. Yeah. And an ancient materialist would have said that's not material. Uh, totally. This is this is my this is my reading of it. Um yeah. I'm with, I'm with you on that. Um yeah, there's oh shoot, there's a paradox about this, but I can't remember it so I don't get to sound smart. Uh that's okay. Um people will know what I'm talking about hopefully. So um so Plato argues against the atomists or like, you know, this broader camp of materialists, whether that includes the pre-Socratics or not, um, with, with beauty, right? Like yeah. how does he, that, that one's so fascinating to me. Can you, can you lay that off for us? Yeah. I use beauty as an example, um, in, in the book, but it, it really works for a number of different, you know, uh, uh forms or essences or, or other things. But, um, the basic way I structure the argument in the book, which I think is summarizing how he approaches it in a number of different places, is that there are things that are real and that exist, but that are not reducible to matter. Yeah. And so there are things that exist that are not reducible to particular particular material things. And so there's a number of pieces bound up with this. But beauty is a nice illustration because beauty is so, um, I would say, abstract in the sense yeah. that lots of different kinds of things can be beautiful. And lots of different features of things can make them beautiful. Um, so it, it, is a diamond ring beautiful? No, absolutely. Uh, is the Empire State Building beautiful? I, th I think it is. Hmm. And yet one is tiny and one is big, right? One is shiny and one is dull. Uh, and so they're very different physical attributes, different colors, different shapes, different sizes, different perceptual qualities of them, right? Like yeah. every kind of five sensory thing you can see from them and perceive from them is like very, very different. And yet they're both beautiful and our mind mm -hmm. can grasp that they are both beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously many other things can be beautiful as well. So just thinking about things like that gets you to realize there, there are things um, that are real that are not reducible to the, the purely physical. Yeah. Um, and this again is bound up with his distinction between particulars and forms or mm -hmm. essences. And um, he, he argues that the things that we perceive are always particular, that is perceived with the senses. We're perceiving a particular ring, a particular set of colors uh, and, and so forth. And yet we can talk about things that are more than just the particular thing in front of us. We can see one diamond ring and we can talk about rings. And that refers to not just this thing, like the name of this ring, but all rings, uh, what it is to be a ring. Right. And so he he argues that just from reflecting on experience, right, reflecting on our experience leads us to the conclusion 
there are things that are real that are not merely particular and not merely sensory, right? Yeah. Not not merely things with material, just just materiality that we can that we can perceive. Um, and so he calls them essences or forms, right? Essence yeah. is really just our translation of being. He calls them beings, uh, usia. Yeah. Uh, so there are the things that are in the most funda fundamental way, and they are um, forms or uh, or I sometimes translated ideas, which I don't like, but for various reasons, but but uh, yeah, forms yeah, or essences. The, the ideal, yeah, our idea means something so different to us today, um, and and something yeah. being ideal is is like we totally ruin that word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. well, so he has with beauty and other things, he has the individual beautiful things. Yeah. And then he has the form or essence of beauty, which is what it is to be, right? What it is to be beautiful. And mm -hmm. that's, we could, we would say now like instantiated in lots of different particular beautiful objects. Yeah. Um, but, but what it is, is not reducible to it. Um, it has attributes that are not just the attributes of the particular, the particular thing. Yeah. And then there's, he has a lot more, he says uh, from there, but that's how you can kind of, just from reflecting on your perceptions uh, and thinking about your experience, move, start moving yourself towards realizing there has to be a bigger structure and order to the world than just the particular material features I see in front of me. Yeah, that's so good. So um, this this might tie into um, your the the piece of the chapter the, the portion on knowledge. Mm -hmm. Does does Plato does he think that we can know individual like items of, of sense or, or are we only knowing the, the forms like his, cause his sense of knowledge is like probably a lot different than what we might just take to be knowledge today. Yeah. This is an area that Plato scholars are working on right now that uh, I do think the use of language in antiquity is a little bit different than what we do now. Right. So we have sure. a certain story that we tell ourselves about knowledge, at least in the you know current analytic tradition, um, knowledge as justified true belief, and then all the challenges that emerge uh, yeah, to that something. over the last few decades. And so then you think about what this justification condition really has to consist in. Um, you get other kinds of accounts of knowledge in terms of regularity theories, proper functioning, and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so in, in antiquity, they have a range of words that are related to knowledge and uh, different different thinkers are inclined to call different kinds of things knowledge i would say that's one way to put it yeah and and when it comes to and, the, and so i say this there's ongoing research in like what knowledge means for the stoics for the aristotelians and others I actually think um we shouldn't just simply assume they have this binary concept like beliefs can be turned into knowledge and um knowledge ranges over all objects or other things like that anyway i think yeah. it's if, if you have grad students that want fun dissertations. There's interesting things to do in this area. Okay. But but for Plato himself, he's very stingy with what he wants to call knowledge. <laughs> right. And um, he thinks that there are gradations of being and uh, that as you go from more real things to less real things, and I know the analytic philosophers are freaking out at this point as well. <laughs> That's um, right. Um, but, but again, before modernity, this was very normal, right? There's degrees of being. All the medievals thought this way. The yeah. Plato and Aristotle thought this way. So as you move from more real things to less real things, your uh, ability to intellectually grasp those things um, has to change in accordance with the nature of the thing that it is grasping. And so things that are, so to get to Plato, for things that are eternal and unchanging, 
the way you can you can know them or grasp them is much more stable and permanent mm. because they are the same and unchanging. Yeah. Whereas things that are are less real and more changeable um, are things that you're not going to be able to grasp in the same way. So yeah. take a distinction that current philosophers are usually fine with, um, something like an a priori truth versus an a posteriori truth. Okay, so take a claim like um, there are five chairs in this room. Uh, if you want to know whether that's true or not, you're going to have to go check. Right. And if I, if we utter that statement in a week, well, we have to go check again because we, we don't know. Okay. So that's a kind of claim that Plato would say you can't know. You can't mm -hmm. know that there are five chairs in this room, even if there are five chairs in this room. Yeah. He agrees. Even if there are five chairs, he would agree there are five chairs in this room. But your mental grasp of that is very limited. Mm -hmm. um, you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right. You're just not, not that kind of thing. You're you not, know. you're not dreaming, right. but it's the kind of thing where you have to come back tomorrow and check again, and you have to come back tomorrow and you have to check again. Yeah. Whereas if we move to what we would call today an a priori truth, things change. So if I ask you, you know, if we take a, a proposition, like, sorry, I'm treating you like a student. If I ask, no, you, it's okay. awesome, man. It's great. Uh, take a yeah. proposition like uh, two plus two equals four. It would say, well, that's true. And I know that that's true. Yeah, and if you come back in a week, do you have to check that again? No, right? you mm -hmm. don't have to check that. So guess what? Your belief that two plus two equals four is going to be able to have a, an epistemic stability to it. Yeah, uh, in a way that your belief that there are five chairs in the room does not. Yeah, and so Plato says, guess what? When you learn um, these truths about what things are, you're learning about a, something that doesn't change. Mm. Um, so uh, when when you learn uh, that Horses are animals, right? That's about the relationship between two different essences, two different natures. Um, yeah, you have learned something that doesn't change next year, right? Mm -hmm. You have you have created you have you have acquired knowledge that is very 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 stable, right? He would say you know completely stable. Once you see all, once you can see the reason why, yeah, right, which is not quite justification condition or something, <clears throat> but once you can see the account of the reason why, that is sure. what makes it to be that way. Right. Yeah. What it is in the being of the thing that requires it to be that way. Once you can see that, you don't have to go check again whether mm -hmm. there's five chairs here, right? Or whether horses are really animals. Horses yeah. are animals. It doesn't matter, you know, what Putin does next year. It doesn't matter, you know, where you go on vacation. Like horses are still animals and, yeah. and nothing's going to change that. So you can have a much higher grasp of that. So when it comes to essences, you can, you can, he gives his highest stamp of approval to those. You can know those, you can have episteme of those. Okay. You yeah, so, so, um, uh, I'm always confused about this part of, of Plato. Are, are you, um, so, so you have the forms and the forms, I think Plato or Platonists usually say exemplified and the Aristotelians say instantiated, but whatever the case, they're, they're, let's say the forms are ex uh, exemplified. The form of horse is exemplified in this particular horse. Do, does, for Plato, do you think that he, is grasping that form by looking at this particular horse or is it is it that doctrine of recollection where you're remembering from your time in you know the third realm or whatever yeah well so given that there are these things like what it is to be a horse and given that what that is is always more than any particular horse or set of horses you encounter you now have an epistemic puzzle mm. The puzzle is how could we possibly learn what a horse is, what it is to be a horse, right. when 
we not only have not experienced all actual horses, we certainly can't experience all possible horses. And even if we could, it's still, even that's not quite getting at the, what it is to be. So how do we, how do we learn? How do we even grasp these kinds of truths? And again, that's kind of a, I don't know, horses are kind of weird, but even just take mathematical truths as a nice analog that we're more comfortable with some of these discussions. Oh, that's good. Because when you, when you said what, yeah. it, what it is to be, I thought maybe you're going with the consciousness thing, but you're talking more like the, no. the, quid, the quiddity or whatever, like the thisness. Well, of the... Yeah. I mean, not, and not the particular, not the particular thisness, but it's, it's nature or essence. Yeah. There's like hexity um, and then there's like uh, quiddity, yeah. right? You're talking about quiddity. So, yeah. So the hexity okay. comes in much later in the story. We don't have that anywhere yet. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the essence or form. Okay. Um, it's uh, good. It's, it's nature. So, uh, yeah. So if you take, uh, something like two plus two equals four, you know, in practice and experience, we learn that by, you know, manipulating little sticks or little rocks. And we yeah. see little pictures on our worksheet in kindergarten and we, we right. sort of do that. But, you know, even today, um, psychologists, cognitive scientists don't really know how we acquire these concepts, or at least this is my take, my read on it. I mean, I'm sure, sure. some of them have great theories and stuff. Uh, but we somehow go from seeing rocks and manipulating rocks to grasping a universal, yeah. right, this universal claim that two plus two equals four and so on. And so how is that possible? Okay, that's the question. How is that possible? And, you know, the Aristotelian tradition says something like, well, we have a power of abstraction. We have a faculty of abstraction where you can abstract from the particulars up to a universal. Right. And you see something like this in Aquinas. You, you see something like this as late as John Locke. Um, this this is a widespread, widespread view. I wonder, does, and it's, like David Armstrong is like a modern uh, proponent of, of this type of stuff. I don't know if he goes into the epistemic realm of it, but he does talk about like the forms being in like yeah. an Aristotelian sense here. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know about the epistemic side of things. That goes beyond what what I've read. But sure. um, I mean, he's an example of someone who thinks there's laws and or forms or things like that, scientific, yeah. you know, universals, uh, universals uh, with, yeah. with these things. Okay. Um, so um, I forget what my line of argument. I, was I knocked going you now, off track. You, I was, were going, uh, you were going. You were going. I was going for it. the grand finale. Yeah. Dang man, I um, ruined it. Um, you were but, going. Yeah, we had we had our two plus two equals four. Yes. We were trying to figure out, okay, Aristotelian. we had the power of abstraction. Okay, so yeah, how do we go from the particulars to the universals? One yeah. way of viewing that is you have this power of abstraction. Mm -hmm. Here's the uh, here's another way. Um, we already had uh, uh, an implanted version of that truth in our soul yeah. from the time we came into being. And that's the platonic answer, is mm -hmm. that not learning and acquiring knowledge is a process of recollecting universal truths already embedded in the soul yeah prior to our existence on earth that we had direct access to these universal rational truths which we then through a process of engaging with the world seeing different things and going through an intellectual process come to remember mm. um, now uh, this has not been a super popular view <laughs> so some rationalists in history have adopted it but it's certainly not the majority view but I usually tell my students, okay, if you don't like that view, then come up with a better answer. Right. And it's not easy. It's, it's really not easy. And calling it a power of abstraction is as good as anything else. I really feel like the Cogsci people can trace some of the contours of that. Yeah. But it really is a pretty unique human power um, that Plato and Aristotle recognize that we can form these universal concepts uh, that apply to uh, all, all possible horses, you know, and all yeah. possible twos 
um, and, and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, knowledge is recollection, not super popular. Requires pre-existence of the soul. That's a problem for Christians. So Christians yeah. don't really go in for that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But you know, it is a real puzzle how we learn, and it's a it's a reasonable. I mean, not my preferred, but it's a it's an option. Yeah. And it, you know, as you know, with philosophy, if you have to make a kind of suspicious move, but it solves a lot of big problems for you. Right. Well, you're like, hey, look at all these other big problems you have. I solved these really big problems. I have this other problem, but I don't think it's as bad as these other really big problems. You can see, I, I think you can see the doctrine of knowledge as recollection is fitting that. And it also fits his overall kind of really spiritual view of the world where yeah. we came from a divine realm and we're going back to a divine realm if we're properly prepared for it. So it, it actually is consistent with his view on uh, on other things and maybe not as much of a theoretical cost as it would be for some right. other other philosophers totally so so I, I was checking my book back here because peter geach has this like takedown of abstractionism in his book called mental acts and and so like i think abstractionism kind of bunk because you have to you have to have the concept if you're going to go find it out there in the world but so like you got this innateism or nativism that like you're they're preloaded, but it's like, well, that seems like theism, like where there's some teleology there. I don't know if I like that. Um, and there's various views on concept acquisition. And I think all of them lead back to to uh, uh, creator God, which is fantastic. So I, I love this area. It's so good. But I wanted to ask about about the pre um, the recollection view. So mm -hmm. and maybe Christians don't have to be as upset about it, but maybe still. Um, God had us like in mind. He, I mean, it depends on what you mean by that. Right. But like, you know, he says that, and I think it's in Isaiah where he's like, yeah, sure. I, I had you in mind and like, well, what else does he have in mind? Well, I, I think if you're a Platonist about forms and you're a, a theist of any stripe, like you, you don't want to say those are outside of God and he has to pull from them in order to be creative. Like you want to say those are at least like in his mind, either he invented them or they're an aspect of his being. So like if, if they're in his mind and you, the concept of you is in his mind beforehand, like, I don't know, maybe we could Christianize this recollection and it wouldn't be so bad, but maybe that's a big problem. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it, it's certainly not a problem for God to know all these things. That's that's great. Um, yeah. It's more of a puzzle of how he creates us and what kind of capacities he gives to us and um, what what it even means for it to like possess this knowledge in our soul before we, <laughs> we, we exist. Uh, right. Um, so, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if... I, I don't see a lot in it that's um, the particular Platonist features that are attractive to um, to Christians, but certainly there's no problem with any of the the divine knowledge. But I think there's more to his view than just God knows all these things ahead of time, right? The idea is more like your soul actually subsists yeah. prior to becoming embodied as an individual thing. Yeah. And um, uh, the way he's thinking about it is you have like sort of direct unmediated access to this this spiritual rational realm. You see all these eternal truths. And then in the confusing process of getting embodied, you forget, you know, forget yeah. so many, forget so many of them and you have right. to climb, climb back up, uh, exactly. you know, to God. So it's really not that those, those pieces of it, I don't think are, are super attractive. Although I still prefer them to like the, the atomist views. I mean, think about what the alternative is. I mean, so yeah. the other alternative is stuff like the Homeric gods. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's also not very attractive. Uh, for various reasons. And and then these hardcore materialist views, which they're like, all you are is a collection of atoms. Yeah. And uh you, you know, you had no spiritual meaning before you existed. After you after you die, your atoms are scattered and you are gone, and there's no experiencing after you're dead, mm -hmm. and there's nothing good or bad for you after you die. 
So Plato, you know, I don't like the pre-existence of the soul, but he has the post-existence of the soul as well, yeah. which is yeah. pretty great. Yeah. And um, a lot of moral significance to it. I mean, his whole yeah. view involves thinking that the condition of your soul in this life directly influences the condition of your soul in the next life. Mm -hmm. And if you are corrupt and vicious, and if you dominate others and steal from others and exploit others in this life, um, you, the next life is not looking good for you. <laughs> right. Um, and if you are humble and practice philosophy and seek to purify your soul uh, and cultivate the virtues and wisdom uh, and, and treat others with justice, uh, then um, you you can potentially reach a very pleasant uh, a very pleasant afterlife. Yeah. So it's it's still pagan, you know. It's not a Christian view, but boy, give me that every day of the week over the the atomist picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk. That's so good. I want to talk about uh, his theology. I want to end with that. But before I jump in there, just like a random question, like mm -hmm. um, some sometimes uh, Christians, early fathers and stuff, will will talk really highly of. Plato, probably more Plato than Aristotle, because I think his stuff got lost for a while. But mm -hmm. um, some will say that he was like preparing the way. Um, mm -hmm. What? And you look at Plato, and you see all the stuff. You know, you you do see that there's a lot of footnotes to Plato in philosophy today. And you're like, well, how how did this guy know so much? What? How the heck did he have all this stuff and so many good arguments back then? What do you make of Plato? Do you think that like? Do you think he just happened to be a really smart guy and figure this out? Or do you think like God was leading him and preparing the way to the pagans? You know, like, what, what do you make of that? Just, you know, personally. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some strong versions of this that are out there that, you know, yeah. Pl Plato is preparing the pagan world for Jesus the way yeah. that, you know, the old covenant was, was preparing Jews for Jesus. And I, I Which think, is totally not true, right? Like totally think, not. Yeah, I think parallels that even approach that are 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 too much, you right. know, for, for me. But you know, I, I do. Maybe it's there's an analog to this. You know, people talk about the way that like the the way that that the Roman Republic and Empire um, kind of dominated the Mediterranean and Middle East yeah. during the time of Christ, and so you have all these Roman roadways and safe passage between countries that enabled the quick spread of the gospel and. Right. You know, in some sense, that's a providential preparation for the spread of the gospel, the way that it actually spread. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of this is under kind of ordinary providence. Sure. Um, but it is fascinating. And I, I, I will say this for Greek philosophy that, you know, Jesus came into the world in an area that was controlled by Rome in the Middle East. Uh, and the, the, the language of the intellectual world at the time was Greek. Mm -hmm. And um, the Jews by that time, in many ways, were already heavily Hellenized in, mm -hmm. in the sense of engaging with, with Hellenistic ideas and ways of living. You know, all the intertestamental literature testifies to, to this range of engagement uh, between the Jews and the Greeks. And, you know, so the, there's, there's kind of this scandal of particularity to the gospel. Jesus was a real person that came in a real time and a real yeah. place, talked to real people in a real intellectual environment. And that was an environment where Plato was part of the intellectual background. Mm -hmm. And so I think of it more of general providence than like, you know, some kind of special revelation to Plato. I don't think that's there. Okay. I think, I think there's a course to history. There's an arc to history. And there were a lot of 
steps in that story in the 400s and 300s BC in the ancient yeah. Mediterranean world, just like there were at other times in other places. Um, and Plato is just a really cool <laughs> part of that. That's awesome. That is part of the background to the world of Jesus and, the, you know, the world that the Christians lived in, in the, in the New Testament era and, and down to, down to today. So it's definitely part of God's providential plan to, yeah. to, bring salvation to his people and to spread the gospel around the world. I, I, I like the way you answer that. I think a lot of times we have a hard time with like the, the what's called the good, bad split of saying like this guy was yeah. good and he, you don't have to Christianize yeah. him. You don't have to make him a Christian to appreciate his stuff and to take an appropriate sum while still being like, but he's, I mean, he's a pagan, right? He's not like, yeah, not going to lead you to salvation through yeah. reading the dialogues. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, as much as he can do for you is what he did for Augustine, which would be hopefully convince you to not be a materialist, um, mm -hmm. convince you not to be a relativist or a skeptic, skeptic to, yeah, sure. to, to point you towards higher things, um, to point you towards value that goes beyond pure pragmatism towards mm -hmm. goodness and virtue and nobility. But uh, you're, you're not going to get all the way to heaven with just yeah. that. Um, yeah. That That's really incomplete. And so by the end, you do see him, going off the rails in various ways. And uh, yeah. I, I don't shy away from critiquing him at various points uh, in the book, certain areas I think he does worse than others in. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to, I wanted to end with that. Um, you, you give, uh, so one of your, one of your final chapters here is for the divine against atheism. Uh, and you give out, you give these two strands of Platonic theology. God is a divine craftsman and then God or the divine is a fundamental principle of all. Are these, well, can you lay out these uh, two strands first and then are they, um, are they at odds with each other or are they, you know, um, in lockstep with each other? Yeah, I, I do see them as in a bit of tension, uh, as in tension, I, I think unresolved tension. Um, okay. Maybe if I come back on in 10 years, I'll have resolved the tension. I don't know. Do it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh so I do think there are these two strands of thinking about the divine in Plato. One is most clearly presented in the Timaeus, which includes his yeah. creation account. And in the Timaeus, you have a divine craftsman, the Demiurge, uh, who creates the world um, with intermediaries helping him. Uh, and he does not create ex nihilo. He starts by taking over chaotic material stuff that's already there mm -hmm. and forming it and trying to make it as good as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. because he is good and wants to make the world as good as possible. Plato says that. Uh, and so this has God as kind of a personal, creative, not ex nihilo creator, but a kind of craftsman, right? Like someone who takes raw material and shapes it for the good. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of one picture of, of, uh, of God that's in Plato. Very, very kind of personalized, uh, uh, theistic in that way. The other is a more abstract, I would say, notion of of God as a kind of eternal principle of goodness. Hmm. And I think you see this most clearly in the Republic, in central chapters of the Republic. You have, uh, this is where he talks about the, 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 the famous allegory of the cave, and you have the, the, the sun and the lion uh, yeah. illustrations in the same area. And in, in that whole section where he's talking about uh, the, the highest things that you know. The, this is where he talks about episteme and other things too. And he talks about okay. the order of knowledge, how you ascend to higher truths through various processes. And he says there at the end, what you, what you ascend to knowledge of, the highest thing is the good, the good itself. Mm -hmm. But there the good is, is like a principle of goodness that causes everything else to happen the way that it happens. It's not 
presented as a theistic God, as a yeah. person who, who acts or cares. It's more like a, like you get in the Neoplatonist later on, a kind of divine one yeah. from which everything emanates, not in terms of causal agency, but just in terms of almost, you have to cash out as an unthinking process. Even that doesn't quite work though. It's the, the status is ambiguous. I think it's, <laughs> right. not, it's not clear. Um, and so you have this kind of, this principle of goodness. And I, I do think you see that in the Neoplatonist philosophers uh, later, later on as well. So I see these two as unresolved. You know, um, in, in Plato, yeah. does that mean he couldn't have integrated them in a way that is sort of beneath the surface? Maybe, uh, you know, that, that's uh, I'm not dead set against that being sure. the case. But I, I think they point towards the way that um, the early Christians will try to reconcile these things in in God's very person, in God's very yeah. being. And so you see um, God, who is goodness himself. For Augustine, right? So Augustine, I really think, brings these strands together very nicely. Okay. You have you have God as goodness itself, um, and yet also a person who is creator and with the absolute power to create a, yeah. out of nothing. And so some of these problems that are, or tensions that are unresolved, I think, get resolved in Augustine. Maybe there's a church father before Augustine that resolves them. I don't know, but I think it, by Augustine, I think you see a, a, a bringing together of these things yeah. in a, in a uh, if, if not fully coherent, at least fairly coherent way. Yeah. Uh, and, to, and to see those two strands brought together. So for me, I'm happy to just leave Augustine as the hero of my, yeah, little, man, short, my little short story about Plato. And um, there's lots of threads to be traced, you know, in, in between there. So awesome. uh, but um, but that, that's kind of where I, I, I see that that part of the story going. Yeah, that's awesome. And it famously like puts the forms in the mind of God too, which a lot of yeah. analytic philosophers of religion are working on today, which is yeah. fantastic. I love it. Yeah, there's really on, ongoing issues here, right? You know, planting or raises questions about this. Other people raise questions about this. Great area for uh, on ongoing study. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So um, do, you, do you have any idea when this book will be out? For the folks listening, uh, it's it's pretty far into the editing process. Awesome, just going back and forth with the editors and so forth. I don't know when it'll be open for pre-order. Yeah. Maybe this spring, maybe this summer. Awesome. Uh, but you know, I think you know if you're going to ETS this fall, that would be kind of check check the PNR stand, look for nice. a, a copy of it there. I think unless something goes awry, we should have printed copies by uh, by ETS. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'll reshare this uh, in the release date and put the there you go. link in the description, man. That'd be awesome. That's great. I, I, I really enjoyed, much. yeah, I really enjoyed this book. This is fantastic. Um, do you have anywhere that you want to plug? So we got this book here, right? But, but uh, can people find your work anywhere if they wanted to hear from you more? Uh, eventually I should like update my academia page yeah, man. And, and things like that. So you can follow my Twitter handle, um, but it's a lot of political commentary too. So I don't know if you want to get into that <laughs> or not. Um, so well, I yeah, should, I should say for the audience that, uh, that you are a PCA dude. And yep. uh, a lot of my audience is like, where are all the Calvinist philosophers at? I'm like, well, here, here we got another one for there's, you guys. So there's, go follow there's plenty of Calvinist philosophers out there. We, uh, we, we get along just fine. It's good. I love that. Well, awesome, man. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for, uh, the book and for your time. This has been really illuminating. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Definitely. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.